On this edition of Making Contact, you'll hear excerpts from the documentary, Long Distance Revolutionary, A Journey with Mumia Abu-Jamal, a chronicle of Abu-Jamal's life and work as a journalist, public intellectual, and political prisoner. Imprisoned for more than three decades for allegedly killing Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner, Abu-Jamal, a former Black Panther, has always maintained his innocence. Amidst a political backdrop that encourages the crackdown of protesters, the devaluing of journalism, and the arrest of reporters, we present this film as a way of examining activism and radical journalism. For the story of Abu-Jamal is a story of many people that have struggled against oppression, structural racism, and state-sponsored tyranny. Powerful governments like to control. They love to control, and they love to silence people. They cannot silence Mamiya. Written, produced, and directed by Steve Vitria, Long Distance Revolutionary, A Journey with Mumia Abu-Jamal, urges the public to not only examine the legal persecution of Abu-Jamal, but also the significance of his life as a radical journalist, who in the face of immense adversity has dedicated his life to unveiling the truth. Mumia Abu-Jamal is one of the lost souls of the revolution. Mumia, how are you dealing with all of this darkness and despair and despondency and so forth? He said, let me write about it. I'll tell the truth about it. It's a living hell. It's a nightmare. They have contained his body and they're trying to figure out how to shut him down entirely. They have moved heaven and earth to stop his voice being heard in the United States. Anybody who has the ability to draw a crowd with their voice and then speak truth, oh my God. I know a lot of political prisoners, and Mumia is locked down as hard as anyone I've ever met. But I've also never met anybody that has such a warmth and such a sense of humor and such a perspective on the world. When you're pushing the lie, the truth is very threatening. So here we have somebody who defiantly says, yes, I'm not only a journalist, but I'm a revolutionary journalist. And no, I don't agree with anything that you're doing. And yes, I have an international platform. Interestingly enough, a platform that I never used to talk about my own case. They want him ground up. There is not perhaps anywhere to be found a city in which prejudice against color is more rampant than in Philadelphia. Frederick Douglass, 1862. Philadelphia in the 1950s was a city in transition. African Americans were migrating in mass from the South. And Mumia's mother, Edith Louise, is part of this historic migration. Her family settles in Philadelphia right after World War II. We lived in public housing that may have consisted of 250, 300 families. Most of the families were either first or second generation people who had moved from the South. So they still had what we would call Southern ways. They look out for each other. They cook a pot and share a pot. He and his brother were just part of a huge pack of kids that ran around what he called the PJs, the projects. I didn't know it then, but I was a nerd. My best friends were also nerds. 
We read comic books like Superman, Batman, the Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man. We traded them and rapped about them like they were real people. Hell to us, they were real. None of us noticed that all of our superheroes were white. Former World Heavyweight Champion Cassius Clay refused to take the oath of induction into the Army. The black Muslim fighter... Muhammad Ali was a hero, especially to black boys. Even though he wasn't from Philly, it seemed like he was always there. And when he came through the neighborhood, the word would pass like electricity. For many of us, he was the initiator of black consciousness. For us, he truly was the greatest. Well, Zora, let me ask you, what did Cassius say to you when you stepped into the ring and shook hands with him before Muhammad the Terrell Ali. fight? No Excuse me, Muhammad Ali. Cassius Clay is a slave name. I didn't choose it, and I didn't want it. I am Muhammad Ali. He had a few great teachers, and one of them, who was from Kenya, taught the kids Swahili. And Mumia thought this was super cool. And so he decided he was going to take a Swahili name. He called it Mumzia at first because he didn't quite get it right. I guess that's when I kind of gave him props. You got a new name, you know, this is really great. You dropped your slave name. If half of what you say about the imperialists and the, and the capitalist rulers is true, they're not going to let you organize openly for this kind of struggle, and they were set up and they were systematically knocked off. You might argue that the Black Panther Party took the first bold step toward creating a movement that didn't simply ask for incorporation into a system, but challenged the very system itself. They believed in mobilizing people for a real revolutionary struggle. And here's the difference with King, that race was not the primary contradiction, that it was class oppression. And I think that's the context in which the young, brilliant Mumia Abu-Jamal grows up. And of course, he has an early awakening very early awakening in terms of his political consciousness, political education, Black Panther Party at the age of 15. I remember reading Ramparts magazine many years ago, and there was a very lengthy, informative piece on the Black Panther Party, and I remember being fascinated by it. I didn't know that a year later, I'd be one of the founding members of the Black Panther Party in Philadelphia. You know, I came up in the gangs, and most people came up in the gangs, but Mumir was, I don't know, man, he was just a, a brilliant student. He was concerned about people's feelings. You know, he, he, he was more, he was in tune to life, man, you know, at, at, at 14, 15 years old. Mumir is just ready. Reggie Shell wasn't stupid when he saw that Mumia had this above-average intelligence and then he had a talent for writing, he applied that to the paper and said, okay, Mumia, you are the lieutenant of information. Mumia was always a quick study. There was a woman named Judy Douglas there that ran the paper. She actually had a lot of newspaper experience and she leaned on him pretty hard and he turned out to be a professional journalist in a pretty short order. I think it impelled me towards radicalism generally 
with, of course, the help of the Philadelphia Police Department. I was astounded at the fact that at 15 years old, he was essentially the same writer. The style was a little more dogmatic as a panther, you know, because he's using all this panther rhetoric, do something nigger even if you only spit, you know. But at core, it is the same black leftist analysis that he does at 56. They were engaged like never before. You had to read Franz Fanon, they read Marx, they read Lenin. They wanted to understand society. That required an understanding which Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Mumia Abu-Jamal understood could only come through study. My job was journalism, radical journalism, from a black revolutionary perspective, writing about the life that we lived without having it edited by the system. I've talked with Mumia hours upon hours about joining with the Black Panther Party and his political education that came from a practical, theoretical approach. Theory, practice, theory. A lot of people would tend to deprecate that kind of work. Well, you weren't a professional journalist, or well, you weren't a mainstream journalist. But consider this. The Black Panther newspaper, at its height of publication, when I was working for it, sold over 250,000 newspapers every week all across the United States, and we sold internationally. How can you write for or edit a newspaper that sells over 250,000 copies and not be considered utterly professional? I don't know whether we will ever be aware of the reach of COINTELPRO. The state is very clever in terms of keeping track, especially the courageous and visionary ones, the ones who are long-distance runners. You can keep track of them, absorb them, dilute them, or outright kill them. You don't have to worry about opposition to them. The COINTELPRO program was a terroristic program. Its function was to terrorize radicals, revolutionaries, opponents of government programs, and to stigmatize and isolate them from the general population. Under the guise of needing to protect national security, the government infiltrated, disrupted, and tracked numerous groups, including Martin Luther King, the Black Panthers, Students for a Democratic Society, and anti-Vietnam War activists. But from the very beginning, J. Edgar Hoover hated black people and was extremely afraid, as it's written in the COINTELPRO files, that a black messiah would rise. So while the white radicals had to be disrupted, the black radicals had to be destroyed. If you tell the truth about the operation of our power, this is what happens to you, like Jesus on the cross. Early on, they zeroed in on Mumia Abu-Jamal. Now, of course, on the one hand, you have to say, the state understood they had a very, very special freedom fighter. They had a very special revolutionary. They knew he was for real, so they really needed to keep track of him. This is a document that reflects a request that was made by the FBI back in 1972 for this photo. And guess who that request was made to? The Philadelphia Police Department. There were reports being written on him since he was 14 years old. This is a, an enlarged photo 
They call him Wesley Cook, we call him Amir. Interestingly, one of the photographs that was obtained had handwritten across the back of the photograph, dead, D-E-A-D. Mia was probably the only reporter in Philadelphia that covered the MOVE organization with any kind of balance or attempt to understand that they were essentially a political anarchistic group. I was not part of the pack. I actually did something that was unheard of, rarely done, which is talk to them, listen to them, and consider what they had to say about one of the most momentous events in recent Philadelphia history, and it wasn't popular. He portrayed it as an assault on a group of people, and rightly so, whereas the corporate media presented them as lawbreakers and community nuisances that the police had to do something about. I don't think it's important what MOVE really stands for. I think it's safe to say that the rats used more common sense than the people inside the house. The rats ran when the fence came down. And that was not Mumia's approach. Why did you join MOVE in the first place? Everything that I heard about the teachings of John Africa, I heard and I seen it to be true. He was drawn to their militancy. He was drawn to them personally because they were black revolutionaries who didn't take any from the establishment. We know Rizzo's a racist, and the only thing we letting him do is put his racism out there, put his credentials out there. We're going to let him put his face all over the world with the headlines, baby killer. I think to some degree he really did become sort of a, a partisan and direct supporter of MOVE uh, in a way that I certainly don't think it would serve his interests as much. He just became persona non grata uh, in the news media, and that's why he was driving a cab at night, because of his insistence on reporting exclusively on MOVE. I remember my boss going off, essentially, and saying, oh, Jesus, uh, Mumia, they're calling you Mumia Africa. It's interesting how mainstream journalists are never questioned when they're embedded with troops or hobnobbing at cocktail parties with generals and corporate criminals. In fact, the conglomerates that sell news never truly challenge the status quo, nor will they ever speak truth to power. But nonetheless, he urged them to intensify their efforts. Mumia Jamal for the National Black Network in Philadelphia. So he joins WUHY, National Public Radio affiliate in Philadelphia, and he becomes a star reporter of their local daily newscast called 91 Report. It was obvious that he was a cut above, that he could rise up in the broadcast business, if no more than listening to his voice. And once he signed in and started talking, he captured you. You know, you had to listen to him because he was telling you something. This is Mumia Abu-Jamal for WHYYFM. Tonight, Representative Richardson warned Bijou officials and factory personnel to expect a bigger and bolder boycott for the upcoming performance of a disco group known as Chic. So the controversy clearly continues. You're listening to the documentary film, Long Distance Revolutionary, a journey with Mumia Abu-Jamal, a chronicle of Abu-Jamal's life and work as a journalist, public intellectual, and political prisoner on Making Contact. To find out more about this week's show, check out our website at radioproject.org, sign up for our podcast, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Coming up, we'll hear more about Mumia's radical journalistic career 
and his arrest for the death of police officer Daniel Faulkner. Now back to the show. The voice of black journalism and the struggle for the liberation of African-American people has always proved to be decisive throughout black history. When you listen to Mumia Abu-Jamal, you hear the echoes of David Walker, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, and the sisters and brothers who kept the faith with struggle, who kept the faith with resistance. Historian Manning Marable. Mumia flirts with a career in television and is offered what today would be a six-figure salary on a Philadelphia network affiliate. But he turns it down because the station makes it mandatory for him to cut off his dreadlocks. He said, my hair is not the biggie here. My concern is once I begin to compromise, will I compromise other things? At the Tasker Homes Project, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal reporting for WDAS. Mamir was experiencing demotion after demotion, his talent devalued by news directors throughout Philadelphia. So at night, he drives a cab to support his growing family, while still working freelance at radio stations and community newspapers. I'm driving a cab to make money to support my family. Abu Jamal found guilty of murder could get death for killing Abu Jamal sentenced to chair in cop kill. Slain officer's wife praises the jurors. After recovering from his gunshot wounds and surgery, Mumi Abu Jamal wrote an essay entitled A Christmas Cage. In it, he describes the beatings he suffered at the hands of the Philadelphia police on the night of his arrest. Nowhere have I read how police found me, lying in a pool of my blood, unable to breathe, and then proceeded to punch, kick, and stomp me, not question me. I remember being rammed into a pole or a fire plug with police at both arms. I remember kicks to my head, my face, my chest, but I have read no press accounts and have heard tell of no witnesses. Where are the witnesses to a police captain or an inspector entering the wagon and beating me with the police radio, all the while addressing me as a black? Where are the witnesses? The history of blacks in this court system is clear enough. When a black man confronts a policeman, he's not supposed to survive. He's not supposed to walk away from that confrontation. When they saw who they had, that was number one. I mean, wow, you know, look what we done ran into. We got a panther, and we're going to kill this panther. We're going to kill this nigga here, right here. In an affidavit signed by court reporter Terry Mora Carter, she quotes Abul Jamal's trial judge, the Honorable Albert F. Sabo, as boasting in chambers. I'm going to help them fry the nigga. You know, ain't no loot. Question that should be asked, perhaps, is if Mumia Jamal died and Officer Faulkner was alive, would he be here? On Friday of the July 4th weekend, 1982, a jury finds Mumia Abu Jamal guilty of first degree murder in the killing of Philadelphia patrolman Daniel Faulkner. 25-year-old slain police officer is survived by his wife, Maureen Faulkner. I was charged with homicide of a police officer in Philadelphia. 
I was convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death. Amnesty International declares that Abu Jamal's original trial was irredeemably tainted by politics and race and failed to meet international fair trial standards. A year later, Abu Jamal is transferred from Philadelphia to the State Correctional Institution at Huntingdon, a medieval-looking hundred-year-old maximum security prison in central Pennsylvania. I can't remember the first time I heard one of his essays, but I know the one that has always stuck with me. Imagine living, eating, sleeping, relieving oneself, daydreaming, weeping, but mostly waiting in a room about the size of your bathroom. Now, imagine doing all those things, but mostly waiting for the rest of your life. Imagine waiting, waiting to die. It's almost impossible to communicate the reality of what life on death row is for someone who hasn't had that experience. In some ways, it defies description. Prison is raw, naked violence, hatred and humiliation. Every day of Mumia's life in prison, his life is threatened. Since his incarceration, Mumia has been subject to non-contact visits. I imagine he must be extremely sensitive on his skin and on his touch, so that when someone is taking his shackles off, someone brushes his... I imagine that he must savor that, even if there are guards who don't dig him. What visitors do not see prior to the visit is a horrifying spectacle, the body cavity strip search. So you go in and you visit in what we call a closet. And in this closet is a piece of glass and a chicken wire that separates us from Mumia. Once the prisoner is naked, the visiting room guard spits out a familiar cadence. Open your mouth, stick out your tongue. You wear any dentures? Why do you have them handcuffed and you separated that way? Pull your foreskin back. Lift your sack. Turn around. Bend over. Most human beings would shrivel up, become very coarse and in their conscious and very hardened in their hearts and very chilly in their souls. It's had the opposite effect on Brother Mumi Abu-Jamal. I once heard Mumia's daughter say that her contact with her father has been all through just letters and phone calls. It's very painful to not be able to hug him. In the midst of darkness, this little one was a light ray, tiny with a mini mouse voice. This daughter of my spirit had finally made the long trek westward into the bowels of this man-made hell. She burst into the tiny visiting room her brown eyes a glitter with happiness, stopped, stunned, staring at the glassy barrier between us and burst into tears at this arrogant attempt at state separation. In milliseconds, sadness and shock shifted into fury as her petite fingers curled into tight fists which banged and pummeled the plexiglass barrier. Break it, break it, she screamed. My eyes filled to the brim. I turned away to recover. I can't even imagine um, the, the thread of suffering. I put on a silly face, turned back, called her to me, and talked silly to her. Girl, how can you breathe with all them boogies in your nose? Amid the rolling trail of tears, a twinkle started like dawn. Over five years have passed since that visit, but I remember it like it was an hour ago. 
The slams of her tiny fists against that ugly barrier, her instinctual rage against it, the state-made blockade raised under the rubric of security, her hot tears. They haunt me. I think that writers, above all, need a room of their own and space and time to write. And Mumia has a room of his own and time and space to write. From a writer's perspective, the conditions are rather spartan. All of the books that he's written have been written in longhand. Mumia has no access to the internet whatsoever. He's never even been on a computer. No email, no Twitter, no Facebook, nothing. Mumia is a very serious writer. He doesn't write about anything historical unless he has read 10 or 20 books. He does an enormous amount of research. And on his third finger near the side of his thumb, he had a callus the size of a finger. This is the fierceness in which he is dedicated to this craft. It's a fierceness that even makes just the act of writing defying the prison authorities. If somebody goes out into the streets using the tools and mechanisms of an imperial power, you can't win. You can't win with money. You can't win with guns. To quote the Zapatistas, our words are our weapons. This is what he's able to do with political theory. This is what he's able to do to make what's on CNN the lie that it is and tell it to you with the charisma of a Malcolm X. It's this ability to connect with people that I think inspires other people on the outside to connect with him and to say, yes, I want to go on a journey with this man because I need to connect like that too. We should remember that during slavery and even post-Reconstruction, there were people who functioned to benefit from the system, black people even while the vast majority suffered from horrendous and, to be honest, terroristic conditions. Their function was to teach passivity in the face of repression. He's a remarkable teacher. I think, for me, that is what I most treasure. Umiya's words, if you taught to school children, <laughs> we'd be a better people a better country. I have Mumia speak to my students via conference call on a regular basis. Mumia! Hello, hello, hello. Hello, it's wonderful to hear your voice. The response is first of all visceral. It's emotional. And I think it's emotional not just because it's eloquent, but also because it takes one to the heart of struggle. And yet he's depicted as a monster, as a raving lunatic. We have yet to acknowledge, must less agree, that there is still a caste system at work in the U.S. We see this man who is behind bars continuing to fight against injustice and fight against racism, fight against poverty. It encourages us who are on the outside, us who are not incarcerated. It gives us motivation to do more, and it also raises our expectations of what we should be able to do, us being outside these walls. He understands that we have to continue this fight because it is still going on to this very day. And it's not about him, it's about everyone else, it's about the collective. He's holding the media outlets accountable, he's holding the world accountable, he's holding ourselves accountable for understanding the truth behind what's really going on. I think that he's given so much to humanity that it's our obligation to continue that sense of truth 
and to kind of uh, be warriors um, for justice. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. You've been listening to excerpts from the documentary film, Long Distance Revolutionary, A Journey with Mumia Abu-Jamal. It was written, produced, and directed by Steve Victoria. We have much more about this documentary on our website, including information about Abu-Jamal's legal case and his ongoing legal battle with the state of Pennsylvania to receive life-saving hepatitis C medication. That's at radioproject.org where you can also browse our archive of past shows and sign up for a weekly podcast or make a difference by sharing and supporting our work with your network of friends and family. We'd like to know what this program made you think about. Please let us know. You can find contact information at our website or write us a review on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter, where our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Marie Che, R.J. Lazada, Monica Lopez, Vera Tyskoller, and Sabine Blasen. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.